Hey, what's up, everybody? Steve here with Bocaholics. Episode, who knows? I lost count, to be completely honest with you. Um, I wanted to bring up the conversation of gender a little more today. Um, none of you should be surprised when I tell you that this is a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart. Not because I have any experience with a family member or loved one that's been going through any of this kind of gender dysphoria type uh, type of thing or like the experience of, of questioning gender or anything like that. I have a few friends who have transitioned over time, but not super close ones. Um, but acquaintances nonetheless, you know, I have no problem with them. But I guess, you know, you know that I have two little girls. I think about their futures. I think about how they'll be expected to interact as they grow and mature in age. Um, you know, I've already decided not to send them to public school. My wife and I have decided not to send them to public school. So I, I suppose they'll um, they'll evade some of the woke bullshit, but can you really ever hide completely from it? And then the trends that we are experiencing and living through now, I mean, is anyone really going to ever be safe? I, I would argue not. Um, but let's talk about it from a little bit of a different angle today. Um, you know, I, I work in the intelligence community. Um, as part of that work, I cannot explain or discuss that work. Um, and by the work, I mean like the actual work, like the content of my job, what I'm an expert in, um, but the nature of the program and how me and Mike start, kicked this off a year or two ago, discussing our backgrounds as linguists. Um, you know, you have some idea of what I've done as a part of my profession over time from linguistics to like different types of human targeting and stuff like that. Um, and on and on. Um, you know, I, I've done a lot of different jobs. So to, to pin my career to one thing specifically would not be an accurate depiction of my, my time in the intelligence community. Um, but what I can talk about are some of the other things uh, as part of the work, right? Like I talk about, you know, just my experience, like as do I like it or not? Or like, you know, how am I treated? And, you know, in general, I, I love it. You know, I love the intelligence community. And I, and I love the work that we accomplish as part of those teams. Um, you know, in the military and now, I was in the intelligence community in, in both of those sides of my life. So I started working in the IC as a, as a uniformed service member, and now I continue to do so as a contractor. I've always really valued that that diversity, you know, that, that you get from teams like that, people from all over the country, uh, people from all different backgrounds. Um, aside from the Army, I would say it's the most diverse workforce I could have hoped for or looked for. I think it's a much truer diversity, a much truer and more natural diversity than that you'll find in like Silicon Valley, for example. Um, and I appreciate that, right? Most of us do. But, you know, as the years progress or as the years go on, every June, this Pride Month stuff comes up. And slowly but surely, like, you know, becomes a little more visible uh, in our offices and in our, in our agencies. And um, we also have insight into what other agencies and departments are doing for Pride Month. And most of it is pretty tame, pretty innocuous, um, you know, nothing crazy. And there are legitimate things that gay individuals need to consider, like their health benefits, for example, right? You know, there are reasons why something like an employee support group would exist and why there would be events um, focusing on that kind of kind of stuff during Pride Month. But um, on, on the more on the broader level, um, you know, I, I've been kind of side eyeing some of the public discussion 
or you know internal discussion to us in the IC, but public as in anyone in the IC could read it or view it. Um, unclassified blog posts, discussions, articles about different pride-related subject matter. For example, like how to be a better ally or transgender visibility. And I guess this is where I get into the like the crux of what this episode's about. So if you just sweep away the good intention parts of pride and people who like just honestly want to see, you know, anyone's arguments, including their detractors and come to some type of understanding and learn a little bit from one another. When you push those folks aside, what you're left with are individuals, whether they're actual members of a community or just allies to that community or just supporters or activists. Um, you get people who have gotten entirely too used to saying whatever the fuck they want without being questioned. And by questioned, I mean, you know, like challenged on the veracity or like the reasoning behind the argument they're making. I don't mean like getting in someone's face or protesting counter to them. It's not, it's not what we're talking about at all. But I mean, we're talking about individuals who just by the nature of opening their mouth and saying words, we're supposed to pretend like we have something to learn from them or that they have some value to impart on us or that they are just correct, right? There's no room to discuss something about what they said, lest you be the, the demon seed, lest you be the bigot, right? And I came across one of these articles today. Now, it was about an ally who was hoping to augment or like learn, you know, increase their understanding of their friend who, was a, who they knew as a male for 20 plus years of their life as close friends but that male eventually transitioned into female, uh, male to female transgender individual. I don't believe that person is also part of the intelligence community. But the point of the article was, of course, you know, a me, me, me. This is about me because that's what most of this shit is. Um, you know, look at me and how I learned uh, or look at me and how I corrected something. Right. You know, we're talking about individuals whose goal is basically to put themselves on a pedestal by talking about how they've been doing everything poorly or wrong for their whole life. You know, th there's room in those, in this conversation for self-reflection. I'm not going to pretend to be, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I'm like the know-it-all, right. Who just knows everything about everyone and has the right idea. But I got to say that the narratives coming out of the gender lobby, the LGBT lobby, not so much the old school, like LGBT, like Stonewall style, like counterculture style, like the, that LGBT was fucking cool. But I'm talking about like this new age, like everything's offensive at every letter type of type of LGBTQIA plus whatever. I guess I think I got that right. Um, you know, the new school of it is very... It's just very tiring, um, and it leaves no room for like an intelligent discussion about about these topics. And to pretend like there aren't social discussions to be had, you know, that's just a, a travesty in itself, and it's part of the comedy. So let's talk a little bit about some of the words and the phrases that people have been using. I, I, I bring these up to say that I, you know, I, as a linguist, a guy like me, when I'm listening and reading these types of type of screeds from individuals within activist communities, like you know, I'm kind of on alert for them. I suspect that maybe some of you are not. Maybe over time you will become more attuned to like these, some of these phrases. 
and I raised them to say, you know, you you should start to call these out more in your own discussions and do and do it respectfully. You know, this isn't like a call for you to be, um, to like to be antagonistic towards someone. This isn't a call for you to start a fight. This is like you know when when you want to have a discussion with someone, and better yet, when someone is open to hearing that from you, when they're looking to engage with you, which is a good opportunity. Um, to kind of lay it out there and say, hey, I'm not like this one-dimensional hater. I have reasons for what I'm saying here, and it's not necessarily about, you know, a, a distaste or a dislike of you as a person. Take that opportunity, but be equipped or be ready to share what you are able to perceive about things and 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 turn them. Because really, what you have to do is you have to debate. Um, this individual writing about their friend who referred to the transgender woman as G. Uh, starts this off in a very typical way. Um, it's kind of like a self-neg, as we would call in like in like the, I read this book about the psychology of dating and someone said, you always start with a neg and it is always a, basically you compliment a woman by, by saying something negative. Anyway, um, a lot of people in the activist community like to start with these negs where like they put themselves down to the point where they just can't be lifted up lest they just completely abide or kneel to the to the lobby right so the only way to basically be enlightened is to put aside everything about you everything about your perception and just suck it all in that's a bad place to start from especially if you're saying you're saying that you're learning it's true you could learn a lot about something but at the same time like the individual teaching you typically could learn something too and the person teaching you can also be right. I mean, it uh, can also be incorrect. That's true if they're human. We're allowed to talk to people on the activist side of things and the activist classes, activist classes as if they are humans. That is, after all, what they want us to say or what they want us to believe. And it's what we do believe. That's why we're so disappointed in the way these conversations go. So when they say something like, you know, it's hard to admit, but all too common that as a straight cisgender woman, I used to know very little about the transgender community. Like, you know, of course, everyone knew very little about the transgender community. It's a kind of a relatively new thing, um, more accepted throughout society. But it's not like a detriment to your person, like to your to your humanhood, like humanity. It's not like a, a personal like failure, especially if you're this person who says that they've been like lifelong supporters of the LGBT movement, right? So like often activists and allies, like they haven't started from a place of hatred, but their eyes have been open to this. They've started in a place of like basically self-professed ignorance. And it goes from like, oh, I knew nothing. And now I know a lot now, but I've always been this supporter of the LGBTQIA community. Um the notion that we even have to have a position like for or against something is kind of weird to me. Like, it's just like this demand, like choose a side. I've made the point on this program a couple of times that when you're told that you're an ally and that the opposite opinion, like, even if you're not saying it like out there, like you're basically insinuating that person's an enemy. So if we're saying like, are you, uh, you know, pro LGBTQIA, like you can't really have any room to just be like, well, I don't really have an opinion on it, right? I just don't know. Typically, if you say that to somebody, they're going to think that you're like ultra-religious, that you're anti, that you're uh, at the very least a very close-minded individual. Like, And plus, everything's so in your face these days that you kind of have to be aware of this. Like, To not be aware of it is almost an admission of an active choice. If you're actively choosing to ignore these topics and these subjects, people are going to kind of come down on you know, figuring you out. And if you want to not be labeled as some some hate, hater or some bigot, right? You know, get ready to defend yourself. Like, read stuff like this and think about what you you how you could structure responses. Think about how you can propagate good conversation. Like, th you know, 
conversation where you both end up feeling good, right? Um, we're in this position where like, we feel like we have to leave someone like in the dust, like dying after our conversations and we shouldn't have to have those in this subject in particular, I have a little less, um, you know, generally if we're talking about things like, okay, for example, these drag shows that we bring kids to that people are not, we, but people are bringing kids to where these kids are stuffing like dollars and drag queens thongs and shit. Like that's disgusting. Those people should be looked at and pointed at and targeted for their child abuse, right? There's no discussion to be had there. But if we're just talking everyday run-of-the-mill issues, even some of the more like out there things like trans issues, because I do feel like that the trans lobby is a little different from the the base LGB style stuff. And that's where you get into this whole conversation about TERFs, like trans exclusionary radical feminists and even the disjointedness and the fracture within the LGBT community a community which I'm not a part of, but just be of the nature of being someone who reads the news or gets in conversations and meets a lot of different people uh, due to the nature of their work or like their social circles. I get involved in these conversations. I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker born and raised. I went to a, you know, I went to a not so liberal college, but it wasn't like a religious or a right-wing college by any means. And it was also 20 years ago where this stuff was just not so common. Um, but I mean, I had friends that were gay there and there was liberal friends. My girlfriend at the time was a Democrat. Like it didn't, it didn't, it didn't matter as much back then, but I've been around people of all, of all shapes and sizes and persuasions and orientations. And like, we got along, you know, like we survived, all of us did. We're slowly like entering this point where like, we're not going to be able to allow both sides to survive at the end of the conversations. I just scanned Reddit not long ago about the reactions to what is a woman by Matt Walsh, which was a brilliant, brilliant documentary. Uh, on the Daily Wire. And one, it was clear nobody watched the damn thing. And I think mean, it's like, a, you know, we can't even get people into the conversation here because they're going to make up assumptions about what something is or what it isn't. They're going to listen to their friends, not to their enemies about about the reactions to it. And they're going to take that and run with it. And they're going to develop opinions about something they've never even seen. If they had seen it, they would have known that Matt Walsh, aside from the narrations, and like the, the cut scenes and some of the basic questioning, he almost says nothing like throughout the entire documentary and what i and even though he might be saying something and in other words his mouth is moving and sound is coming out he's not exactly leading or like drawing he's kind of just giving little crumbs for the for the speakers to kind of continue their their conversation and maybe bring them back onto track onto the track of what the point is and that is to define what a woman is and the magic of the documentary is that none of these folks could do it right and it's really a basic question it's not a gotcha question if it is, in fact, a gotcha question, then that person is the problem, not the person asking the question, i.e. Matt Walsh, right? So, um, you know, it's tough to even start these conversations, but when you hear folks discuss transgender issues, when you hear the allies discuss them as if they're about to, like, teach you or educate you, I mean, the language they'll throw at you to start that is always very patronizing. So just be ready for it, be aware for, of it. And understand that the people talking to you think you're dumb. They think you're at least missing something. And they've like they've achieved it. Like they've attained this like nirvana-ish, this nirvana-like state where they've been dribbled like some kind of nuggets from their friends or like other activist allies. And now they've been like saved almost to the point of like, you know, accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, right? Um, so they've been saved and now they're like pure, like their thoughts have been purified and they've been made whole. It is a bullshit concept. It is not based in anything. And you're going to see it 
in some of the examples I talk about here in this article I read, which I've unfortunately gotten a little bit off, off the track with uh, going on my little aside there. Um, but this individual talks about how the trans woman that they knew since they were kids, um, you know, it was kind of a shock that when they, when they came out and decided they were going to transition at the age of 30, that, you know, it, people weren't ready for it. Um, the author says that G the trans woman outwardly presented characteristics that science, that society might implicitly assume are cis male. Um, basically setting off the fact that, you know, this is a pretty natural disposition people have where they tend to understand or perceive people as being only male or female. I have news for everybody. That's normal. That's the normal position, right? Things outside of those bounds of male and female are the exception. They are the oddity. I don't mean that in like a sideshow reference. I mean, like that is the abnormal. That is the outside of the norm. Um, she goes on to explain that her friend G was a star athlete, um, like in, in the boys, like varsity soccer team, worked construction jobs, building houses in the summers, uh, dated women seriously and casual, casually majored in engineering, had a computer programming gig, um, loved building furniture. Like clearly this person who claims to like, you know, be all about these LGBT issues. She understands that there are gendered things, not gender roles. I mean, she wasn't saying that G here at 30 was computer coding their way to a white picket fence house with the wife in the kitchen. Like, you know, that's not what they were getting at, but she's clearly setting aside the understanding and the notion that there are things that men typically do more often than women, not that women aren't involved in engineering, not that there are women who don't code. I know both, right? I know people, I know women in both of those, those professions and those, in those realms, but you know, they understand it. It is understood. And the fact that she's even talking about it in the concept, in the context, excuse me, of a discussion about her trans friend tells you that she knows it's one or the other. She won't realize it, but she knows it. It's one or the other. It's not both. It's not a mix. It's not really a spectrum, at least not how, you know, the expression of gender, which is really just like being creative, right? It's really just like, almost like an art, whether you think it's good or bad or not. It doesn't matter. It's, that's, 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 uh, that's not up for consideration, really. Art is your appreciation for art is subjective, right? I mean, I'm a fan of abstract art, and some people would think that stuff I like is stupid, not not even real art, right? But I see something in it, right? But the way someone expresses themselves, being a subjective thing, it's not objective, right? I mean, it's objective in the sense that we could all see it, but it's subjective in the sense that we will might we might perceive it or understand it differently if it exceeds the bounds of what we know or consider normal. The she's, the, I mean, the they's and the them's and the jurors and the it's, like the, the folks who are kind of like, androgynous or just like kind of in the middle of their expression, right? Um, the fact that they think you're supposed to know what that is, that's very selfish. That is very um, narcissistic. The fact that they think that you, you know, you need to look at them, one of billions of people in the world and just kind of get where they're at. It doesn't make sense. And for those of you who will never perceive it, that's okay. Stop apologizing for it, right? You don't need to change the way you say language. That's not evolution of language at all. Being told, say, that this is a they or a them or a jure. I mean, it's just a silly thing that we've kind of stumbled into, that we have a hard time 
having the balls to push down or suppress. Um, <clears throat> the author continues here, um, you know, that G, the friend, was having problems, like uh, uh, insinuating that these were happening behind the scenes. You know, it's, it's not necessarily like something I would say, like, oh, that can't be real. Or it's very clear to me that people in the trans community are troubled. But the thing is that a lot of the trouble appears to have manifested itself prior to the transgenderism or prior to the gender dysphoria, or at least, you know, prior to them coming out, right? It's not so much a matter of them being um, disliked by their family or disowned or shunned, like after their transition. It's like something that has always been occurring. Super sad, by the way. I'm not like saying like, you know, go deal with it. Um, I've been blessed to be raised in a loving family. My wife's the same. And like, that's going to translate into, you know, good things for our children. Um, I, I definitely have sympathy for people who've been raised in families that aren't supportive of them or where the love is not there. And I could feel for someone in a situation like this where they're just lost and think that their gender isn't real um, or that it's they're born in the wrong body and they're going through these problems. Um, but it's also a trait that I'm noticing is basically all of them. I've yet to really see someone who was trans or hear about someone who was trans who just like came from like, you know, oh, yep, everything was great. Things are good and things are still good. And I went on these medications and things up. It's that's never the case. And if we're going to talk about socially constructed things or gender being a socially constructed thing, how is it that we can't inject at least the question of what is going on with you socially in the past? Now, like, where do you see your life going? Like, what is the trends? What are the trends that are occurring in your life that might be contributing to the way you're deciding to express yourself, right? Um, you know, forget about the trans stuff for a bit, but like, what? think about when you were a teen. Think about when you were a kid. Think about how some of your friends at school dressed. I had some friends who looked like absolute fucking clowns. They wore Jenko jeans that were about 14, like, sizes too big in the legs called wide leg jeans. I was, it was really in like the early to mid nineties skater kind of rush, right? Um, heavy metal music, skating, jumping on stupid pipes and stuff, doing flips. Um, that was like the scene back then. And like a lot of those people were doing it because their parents weren't into it. Like they didn't like it. Right. And even though the parents were kind of of the mind of like, all right, whatever, they're not getting in trouble Let them where they want and be stupid and get this out of their systems. My mom wasn't by the way. Um, I never had white leg jeans. Um, even though I wanted them. Um, you know, a lot of the way people express themselves or the way they manifested or whatever other word you want to say to allude to like someone's outward appearance or like how they show themselves to the world. A lot of it was done as like a counter to the rules governing them, right? Um, you hear a lot of different takes on like what makes someone transgender or what it is and like um, how it came to be or like when it started or when they knew. Um, you do hear some variants in how that those stories get told, but generally it's starting to get pretty, pretty, like pretty cookie cutter, almost like people are copying each other. And when I was young, I'll tell you, there were very, very few uh, trailblazers amongst the youth. Generally, it was a person you thought was cool, did something. You thought that they were the one to start it. The reality is, is they too had someone that they were ripping off of, or what, we, what, word, what word did we use when we were young? Biting, biting off of someone, right? Like copying, sweating was another one of the words we used. Man, just talking about this brings back the memories. But it was very infrequent that someone was a true trailblazer and started trends on their own. 
I am beyond convinced at this point, when you think about just the sheer numbers of what we're seeing now about who's coming out and like how friend groups are just like, there's multiple trans individuals in groups together becoming trans and like not necessarily all starting that way, but ending that way. And there, you know, there is a social side to this that needs to go be, be spoken of. Um, there's more about it than just the social pressure of it too. I think there's a lot of financial um I think there's a lot of financial motivation to pushing this kind of shit on kids. I think there's political motivation on pushing this stuff on kids. If you could get rid of the gender for kids, like the concept of it, something so A, B, something so black and white. Um, if you could destroy that, you could destroy anything about a kid and their like perception of life, or at least the parental influence that they're, that they're, those who raise them will have over them. In that regard, you have teachers who could basically control the next generation entirely. Um, I also think that there's some, some hesitancy on the part of the medical profession, the medical community and medical professionals to do something that um, appears insensitive to individuals. Um, in the Matt Walsh documentary, they talked to Jordan Peterson, who says, you know, this is silly because you're not supposed to affirm as a therapist. That's not your job to affirm. By affirm, he's referring to gender affirming care, which is mentioned in this article that I'm reading from today, um, that I'm referencing. Um, it's not your job to like, you know, be someone's buddy and just affirm what they tell you is happening in that regard. A friend is not supposed to be someone who just affirms for you. A friend should be someone who's there for you and has the courage to tell you when you might be off course or to tell you that maybe something you're doing or thinking deserves to be looked at in a different way. Um, even if you don't like it, right. To affirm is not necessarily to support to affirm is not necessarily to do right by your friend, loved one, or anybody else. Um, so gender affirming care in and of itself is just an evil, simplistic, um, silly, silly concept that has definitely made an impact. Just the sound of it, gender affirming, gender affirming care. It's soft. It has vowels. Things that are soft like that tend to comfort people. And if you're affirming someone, if you're comforting them and saying, yes, 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 it's right, you know. There's not going to be a lot of room in that person's heart to consider alternatives or say, maybe I'm wrong. So my favorite part about this article is the fact that this individual, in the midst of their kind of soliloquy about how stupid and bad they are for not knowing about gay or, in this case, trans stuff, um, you know, they turn it over to G at one point. Um, clearly, they had just thrown over a couple questions in email and whatnot and some of the things that G says are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about it. And this is where I come in as a dad, right? Because, you know, I don't particularly care what adults do on their own. But what I do care is that, you know, there's the chance that some teacher who my kid, I mean, I think about the teachers I had growing up. You know, these were heroes to me, like just straight up heroes. I love going there every day. I love just being taught whatever by them. I don't know how it was for you guys, but when I was in grammar school, one teacher taught all the subjects, right? So this teacher is te teaching me everything I know about science, math, or like teaching me like, or guiding us through like learning how to act and like put on plays and, you know, just individuals that I thought were gods, right? I would have trusted them with anything they told me about, anything. If they told me that aliens, I could find them under a specific rock in the park near our house, I would have gone there looking and never come home until I found them. Like, that's the type of trust we're talking about. And kids are trusting people. 
They're impressionable. They're trusting, but they are kids. By definition, a kid is not resilient. We, that's why we don't let them vote. That's why we don't let them drive. That's why we don't let them make certain decisions about their, their life until they are a certain age because they are kids, right? The fact that we allow kids to basically diagnose themselves with something at a young age, then we tell medical professionals, these are people who have spent lives dedicated to the craft of science and whatever medical field that they've chosen. They've dedicated their lives to that profession. We're saying, by the way, you can't disagree with what the patient tells you. You literally can't do your job or we're going to stop it. Or we're going to stop you from being able to do that job. Basically, we're going to cancel you out to the point where you're fired and you can't get, get hired anywhere. That is like a circus of a life to be promoting. And it's what we allow when we look at these puff pieces like this or we allow events to go well of course we could allow them free speech is real but when we don't say anything in response to puff pieces like this now me at work you know in the ic things are pretty tame right now i keep telling myself that when i'm told one morning that i'm supposed to put my pronouns in like my email signature and i mean a lot of people already have them in there so i'm, I'm sure this day is coming but the day that i'm told that I'm shutting down my system, I'm putting my badge in, and I'm leaving, and I pray I have a plan <laughs> offer something alternative um, at that point, because I'm going to need to pay for my kids, my kids and their education and their diapers. But, you know, we have to stop allowing ourselves to trade away our principles, right? Stop allowing ourselves to believe in this stupid language and hype that traditions or some type of rules or not adherence, but like a reverence for things that we just know are normal and safe and real. What that we have to pretend that those aren't real or true or that there's something to be ashamed of. The gender binary isn't something to hide from. The lessons that we learn of it aren't something to hide from. While we shouldn't promote people being hateful or mean-spirited or, or bigoted towards their people around them, their employees, their colleagues, I should say, um, or just the strangers on the street, right? You know, that's just, you just should be good to everybody, right? But the fact that just talking about this stuff in the negative gets you labeled as someone who doesn't want transgender individuals to exist, right? That, that's, that's silly. And it's done with a purpose because the individuals defending the trans lobby or the gender lobby, um, like I said, not so much the greater LGBT community. There's plenty of issues within that itself, but I mean, less so that I, I, I see it as being less of an issue than the gender lobby because of its impact on kids, but, um, or it's targeting of kids. But um, so I'm getting off, a little off track here, but basically like we should be able to have those conversations in good faith with people. The environment should be one where that lobby, if they want us to change our minds about something, should be open to hearing that's the, our side of things. Um, if they want to develop a, or if they want to um, like condition or create an environment where we're open to understanding and learning about them, one, they have to make a point that is worthy, and two, they have to make it like at least some type of attempt at like a reasonable or like logical 
X plus Y or like just there's something that follows after a statement, right? That's what you don't get right now. You don't get that from the lobby. Like in the documentary, I'll, I'll bring it up again. You, when, when Matt Walsh asked people what a woman was, they said a woman's a woman, right? They just kept using the word woman. It was cyclical. It was circular. It made no sense. It kept coming back on itself and imploding. And that's where we're at. If you look at people who are talking about the documentary now, they're claiming that anybody talking about it in support of it thinks that transgender individuals shouldn't exist. That's where we're at. How do you come back from that? Well, you know, if that's what they believe, maybe it's going to take an entire generation then for them to change their opinion on that. But one thing I can guarantee you is that if you don't say something, if you don't speak yourself, that opinion's going nowhere. It'll be continued to be reinforced over and over again in insulated corners of the world and on the internet. And you'll have kicked yourself in a hundred years when your great grandkids are being told that they have to like put their dick in a George Foreman grill, you know, like to make up for their, the sins of the patriarchy, something stupid. Speaking of the patriarchy, let's get into what G says here, because I got to say, you know, when, uh, when the author of this article introduced G and kind of talked about, her, his, whatever background, like, or, or, or their like upbringing and what they did. Um, I didn't expect some of the shit I heard in G's interview. And so um, G is asked. All right, here we go. I got a lot of notes. All right. So bear with me. G was asked what her pronouns were, what, what her pronouns were, how they identified and what other basics, you know, people should know. So uh, in the first curveball, G says, my pronouns are she, they, not she, her, right? And I identify as a non-binary woman, which for me, or which, which for G means that on the spectrum of gender, she presents um, like closer to a woman than a strictly non-binary person, which... If you wanted a translation, that doesn't fucking mean anything. Uh, G is 35, white. Of course, you have to mention this, right? Because even trans people want to put themselves down somehow. So, right, she's 35, white, and G comes from a background of material privilege, right? So this is one of those situations where the oppressed, they... You know, they can only be so oppressed, like up to a point, because they have to also identify those who have been more oppressed. It's like the oppression Olympics. Um, she didn't say it here, or G didn't say it here. But basically what she's trying to allude to is the fact that because she's white and came from like material privilege, which to progressives these days means that your parents were able to afford milk. Um, because she comes from that background, um, basically she's trying to say, you know, I had it bad because I had these issues and my unsupported family, an unsupported family, which I'll get to in a second. She bad mouths the shit out of her family. Um, but I couldn't be as bad as a black person. That's what she's basically getting at without saying it. Uh, black or indigenous or any other minority. Um, that's what G is talking about. And of course, you can't have the rundown of someone's background from the LGBT community without getting into all of their other problems because uh, you just have to know, right? So G has epilepsy, attention deficit disorder, ADHD, as well as autism spectrum. They're, they're on the spectrum. Um, here's the thing. Like, those aren't things to, like, take lightly. I'm not taking lightly to them now. Um, I suspect that a lot of people in the LGBT community have issues similar to these. Um, 
because they don't stop talking about them for one, but you know, on a more serious level, that's a real common trait amongst people in these groups. Um, you know, what I will say is that the fact that those are shared traits amongst people doesn't mean that it's like this blanket okay for everything you say. Like you could have, you could be on the spectrum of autism. You could have ADHD. You could have epilepsy and still be wrong about almost everything you're saying. Your politics can still be shit. And I would argue that the LGBT lobby and the, and the gender lobbies, and you know, all of third wave feminism, which drove a lot of this, I would say that almost everything about their politics is shit. I was listening to someone the other day talk about how everyone hates Lauren Bulbert or uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, like some of the two, two of the most like controversial congresswomen uh, in politics today. And, you know, I don't have any like personal like affinity for these individuals. Um, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I guess Bulbert's from, hmm. I forget, you know, one of them's from Georgia, whatever. I, I, I remember exactly. Um, you know, I'm not as well read on some of the people like that aren't my, my politicians or aren't my representatives. Um, that's not the point. The point is that the fact that a certain group of people hates them makes me like them. And that's what that individual is saying. Because the people who hate Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Berbert, Lauren Boebert, um, are basically wrong on everything. Like they're just never right. Whether they're moderates or extreme, they're just never correct. And their positions always suck. And this is what I'm seeing from people like this. You know, clearly people who are going through something, people that I want to be sympathetic with and reach out or make a connection with and talk to and learn about, right? I like learning about people. I like learning about different people. I, would, I wouldn't thrive and I wouldn't enjoy a situation in which I was the same as everybody. I hope that you and those of you with young kids teach your kids to search for and yearn for the same, but that goes both ways. Diversity or the desire to be in a diverse environment goes well beyond the color of people's skin. Um, and depending on where you're from, skin color might be the least important thing in your life or what your opinion of diversity is. Stop letting people tell you that, you know, your sexual orientation, your color are basically the only keys to your diversity and your place in the community. It's not. That's bullshit. G continues here talking about, um, you know, what makes G G, right? And this is the part that just I put a little exclamation point and two stars in my notes because... Uh, just for the record, I, I wrote her, like, I wrote this article down word for word. There's a reason why I wrote it by hand. I won't get into it. But I do that sometimes when there's something I want to say that is like an unclassified thing and might just make for a good conversation down the line. Um, G says, I think it should be set up front. So she's, she's, she's pushing this by herself. Like the author, who I don't even know the name. I forget the name. Very, the author is very, like, um, even though the article is about how the author like doesn't know shit about LGBT stuff, uh, LGBT stuff, like the author is at this point just kind of gone from this. Like, who gives a fuck about the author now? Now it's honest to G show, and without even being like elicited or asked this upfront, G says, "I think it should be said that the construction of being trans is an emergent facet of Western patriarchal society." Now that is just like, you get these words and these word pairings. And as linguists, you know, like when I was an Arabic linguist, there were sometimes ways in which you can string words together that made you feel and sound smarter because they were just words that were often used. Um, like the word statistics, when I was tested in, in speaking, 
Um, the word for statistics is ihsahiyat in, in, in Arabic. And, you know, wh- how do you read statistics, right? Or like, how do they present themselves? Um, you know, they show, like, what kind of words would you see in an article in English about statistics? Like, statistics point to, or statistics statistics show, or, um, you know, the verb that I would choose to make that word sound good and to get into a conversation about something, because we were always talking about something in the news back when we were learning Arabic. It wasn't as militaristic as you would imagine, Um, or at least when we were being tested, we were just having colloquial conversations with our teachers about different subjects um, in pop culture and and, in politics and the economy and government. And so I would say, so the, the, the the statistics indicate in Arabic the verbs often precede the the nouns um, the, and whatever. Um, you know that just always sounded so good to me. It was easy to say. I knew how to write it. I knew how to like write it very pretty. I was a very good handwriter in Arabic, and I would say, you know, to share al sahiyat like an increase in something, and I would talk about like crime, or I would talk about uh, an increase in support for the war or something. You get used to those little phrase kind of pairings where you could string two or three words together and it makes things easier to say. But at a certain point, you know, I was just regurgitating canned language that I memorized. Like I would basically have like a canned four sentence response to literally anything when you were talking, when we were talking about like nuclear energy. And I'm not a particularly like, I'm not particularly interested in energy discussions at all. But for the purposes of getting through my Arabic class in the military, I would know kind of just what to say. And I knew also how to do it in a way that I could transition whatever the hell I was being prompted by the teacher with. I could transition within a sentence, maybe a sentence and a half, I could transition that into a conversation I created and a point that I was making. And the teacher would eat it up and it would be whatever I wanted to say. And it was always something I just already knew to say. So when you hear things like the word constructions of being trans, in this case, G is talking about how the construct, i.e. the gender construct, is somehow tainted. Um, Imagine this, the trans lobby, the gender lobby, LGBT, they, they use the word construct as a detriment, as a way of saying that society has somehow done something wrong. There, instead of like a, a word that they would probably prefer to use is like imprisoned or uh, imprisonment, or uh, confine, like something that alludes to being chained up or held back. That's what they're talking about with construct, right? The construct of being trans. Now, they're not saying that being trans is bad, but what they're basically saying is that there is a determination of what being trans is today. Um, And in this case, they're talking about... (laughs) This is an emergent facet, you know, like what the fuck does that even mean? An emergent facet of Western patriarchal, patriarchal society. So what, what this, they're basically talking about in, in pretty can language is that being trans today is something that is, right? It just, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is. It just something has been created by a reaction to, in response to, as a result of how we've allowed and enabled Western society. In this case, G says it's patriarchal society. That's another discussion for another time, but basically how it's evolved into what we now know as like modern society. What they're trying to say here is that that construction had a prior kind of thing. And this is a super common uh, argument. It's, it's used as, as like this gotcha from the trans community that, that indigenous communities had like other genders that they recognized or like expression that they were into. Um, in this, she, she calls it culture of gender variance which was subsequently erased by colonization. 
uh, referring to the two-spirit genders, which I believe is like Native American, like third gender, and Hydra, which I want to say is like Indian. Neither of them fucking matter because what they aren't addressing up front is the fact that because something exists, because something existed, that's not an argument to or for or pro or con. There's more to that existence. So the fact that something existed doesn't mean shit about how it exists today. It doesn't really have an impact on it, right? I mean, it's interesting to learn about. I mean, I think that's pretty cool to know, like that that Native Americans had this stuff. Now, I mean, in some ways, today's like activist lobbies and activist movements, they morph like the real meanings behind some of these concepts like Hijra, but, um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, right? It's not a bad thing to learn about, but the fact that they existed doesn't fucking mean anything, right? Something being doesn't mean it was good. Like you could, something can exist and never exist in a state of goodness or correctness or righteousness. You know, like a lot of bad has existed. Now this is not, we're not talking about something evil. We're talking just, we're talking about something that might just be wrong. So the fact that the indigenous recognized a two spirit or that there's a hydra amongst Indian communities as a third gender, neither means anything, right? Or at least it's not impacted by what we know today. Um, and on top of that, I mean, you know, G kind of, you know, was a man for most of their life. Right. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said about this addiction of just hating everything about what made you that really tarnishes this whole thing. So paragraphs like these with phrases like emergent facet of Western patriarchal society, it's like, shut the fuck up. You know, that's how you lose people. But think about this. This was in an article in the United States intelligence community. Not as like a, you have to abide by this and you're going to be tested, but just as a, this is what someone is saying. And because they're saying it, we should regard it or respect it, or we should consider it true. That's what we're being told in the United States intelligence community without anyone even having to open their mouth. Um, I'll go on. So this is where, so the, the, the author of the article probed G about like, you know, how they knew they were trans or when they realized it. And G says that, you know, it was around the age of five and it started with some cross-dressing being an early sign, um, identifying with female heroines. I wrote that down. I'll get back to that in a second. All right. I, I should say I underlined it. Identifying with female heroines and characters and making mostly female friends. So, you know, nothing about this is, you know, screams with you must be a woman. Right. But again, kind of similar to the point I made earlier about the, the author of this, G is talking about how they know that there are distinctly female and distinctly male things, at least how we would identify with them in pop culture. I mean, I probably had just as many female friends as I did male friends as a high school, but I was a super jock, like super masculine. Um, definitely had no cross-dressing in my life, and I could understand why maybe a kid, you know, would consider that a huge indicator. I get it. Not saying that this is not like what they experienced and maybe didn't explain some of that, what happened, that which happened or became, you know, the reality. But then she said something like female heroines. And I was like, you know, every heroine is female. That's the word heroine. Like it's a gendered word. It's the feminine version of hero. Right. Um, so the, the, the fact that G has to like add like an amplifier onto words further tells me that the words are shaky to begin with. You know, like emerging facet of Western patriarchal society, like our emergent facet, female heroine, um, the word access, which pops up here all the time. Um, 
privilege, material privilege. Um, you know, we'll get to some more, but the, the language is always just so fascinating. Um, <clears throat> so G goes on and kind of gets a little weird here. And, I, you know, as I was reading this part in particular that I'll share in a second, I thought, you know, like, this is like one of those things that if I was a professor, I would underline and be like, WTF, mate. Like, I would say you need to, like, source this out a little better or, like, just explain what you meant here. Because a lot of the things said... Uh, in these type of activistic like uh, environments and publications, like they don't make a lot of sense when you think about them or like, they're just such disjointed, like kind of thought vomit um, type exercises that like, it's kind of hard to even find the strength to, to like bear with it or stick with it from, from the beginning to the end. It, do you think that's effective? Like it's probably not, but G says something here that just baffles me. G says like, you know, there wasn't language or like there wasn't access to the language and community. I mean, that's kind of, it's yes and, and not. I mean, G is alluding to two things, like access to like the community's language. A lot of that was spurred on by the internet and us 90s or 80s babies, but most of us who grew up like into our teens in the 90s, late 90s, we had the internet when it was like, and like if your mom picked up the phone, it kicked you off. Um, things were a lot slower back then. The communities were like smaller and like information didn't travel as frequently. So on that point, G is right. You know, the communities weren't really there, at least how they were today. Um, the ability to feed off other people, you know, in a way that's such a huge blessing. But I would argue that at the same time, like, you know, the fact that information can be shot back and forth between a billion people in a matter of minutes, um, the fact that that information can be wrong, you know, the speed at which that is getting shared tells me that you're going to have a lot of people who are impressioned or, or impression they're going to make impressions of that information or based on that information in a very quick amount of time and it'll stick with them forever and it might just be shitty information right so that's the downside to the internet and the fast internet or the fast uh, world of or the, I should say the world of speedy informational exchange. Um, the other thing that she's saying there, though, is that there wasn't access to the language. I mean, yes, there was. And what they're, what she's trying to infer is that, you know, language needed to catch up to like what was happening. Um, I won't get into another spiel about the evolution of language. I talked about it in the last episode. But, you know, that's the other thing is that this is not really about evolution of language. You aren't being denied access to it. Um but at the same time, I would say the, the more pressing issue is that these communities are able to exchange and bounce off ideas from each other in super lightning quick speed. And I think it is a detriment to the point that we all need to take a second to pause and think about it, what it is we're thinking or the opinions that we're formulating, the positions we're taking on things, um, and basically our worldview, right? Like your worldview is to be something that you, like, uh, it should be something that you massage over the course of years, not minutes. And today's rate of information exchange is kind of making that impossible to do. Um, but after she talks about that, she says that AIDS has a lot to do with that, like the fact that there isn't communities. And this is where my eyebrows kind of perked up. AIDS has a lot to do with that. And the generation that should have been our leaders and mentors was decimated. And I kind of just sat there for a second, like, who is she talking about, right? I mean, like, who was mostly impacted by, by HIV and AIDS? I would say AIDS, right, is the more common thing that leads to death. I know HIV leads to AIDS often, but especially when it first came around in the 70s and 80s, like, who was, like, the target or, or seen as those who were most often impacted or 
lost their lives. And that was gay men, right? So I'm confused as to the point G is making here. Um, you know, G, in, in the beginning of this, when, when G was talking about themselves or when the author was talking about G, they were talking about how G, yes, in spite of transitioning to a female, was still into women. So basically, like, if, if G is to be assumed a female, G is lesbian now, right? Um, so what mentor was G looking for? Um, just someone, anyone? Or a gay man? Like, what is the common trait between a gay man and a transgender woman? Um, or are we just in a situation where, like, you just throw anybody who feels oppressed for a gender or sex-related topic, and you just put them in the same group? And there's no individuality within that. I think we're a lot closer to that, right? I think we're a lot closer. And that's why we see the language being so repetitive and just kind of monotonous because the ideas are stale. This is not the first time people have talked about this stuff. You could go back decades to some of the more radical like discussions in, in academia during the 70s, 80s, even the 60s, you know, earlier. Um, you see a lot of this language kind of starting to pop up in, in activist circles. Um, counterculture to the norm, counter to conservative, like uh, center right ideology, counter to the white picket fence, nuclear family teaching, counter to um, being married and saving yourself for marriage before you have sex and raising, raising kids after you get married. That kind of stuff, like there was a reaction to it. Um, that's where a lot of this spurred from. And, you know, if you ask any of these activists, like they they start talking to you like they're like these poets right like they're Issa, they're Issa shakespeare of lgbtq canon and they're telling you something you never heard but has is anything in here really something that we haven't heard yet no g's just repeating shit that people have told g or stuff that g's read right and the fact that a bunch of people have said it before g doesn't make it right and the stuff that g is saying by and large is kind of weird right so when you hear something that's weird I don't mean like in a na 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 weird. I mean, if you hear something that kind of triggers like this reaction from you, like that doesn't make, you know, that doesn't sound right. Like that, that isn't the logical conclusion that person should make by the, by the phrase or like the segment that they introduced before that. Right. You know, like if you hear someone say, well, this parent was against that trans boy or that trans female, that trans girl, i.e. a boy sharing a bathroom with their daughter in the third grade and then they follow it with and therefore that parent wants my trans daughter to die like that, that when you hear that kind of stuff which is very common i mean how often do you hear someone say like do you want a a dead daughter or a living son like you know like when they talk about their trans kid like grappling with the their acceptance over their gender ideology and their expression um how often do you hear that you hear that all the time um the amount of psychological fuckery going on here is exorbitant right and g as well-meaning as G is here, I don't know what G's motivations were other than to talk to her friend. Um, you know, G's not immune to it. Um, <clears throat> naturally, the next part of the conversation is G talking about, you know, what justifies being trans or like what is trans? Um, and, you know, everyone has to go into like their own like little, um, their own little hypothetical, like, you know, I tell cis folks to see it like this or to think of it like this. And G's got one for you. Trust me. So G, as like with everybody experiencing gender dysphoria, claims that they were living in the wrong body um, and then likens it to running in a race with your shoes on the wrong foot. 
while everyone insists otherwise. That's kind of weird. I mean, it's not like a super like controversial type of hypothetical, but that's what you came up with after like dealing with this for like decades and finally deciding to transition. Like G fully talks about the fact that G is looking to have her sex organs changed. Um, you know, probably a top and bottom surgery, as they say, like going the full way, hormone replacement therapy, um, you know, just doing it all. So like, clearly G is into this, right? And G feels good about it. So good for G. But, you know, this is like the the lesson, like I'm running a race with my shoes on the wrong foot. I mean, people have done that before. I put my ice skates on the wrong feet once it sucked. But like, you just kind of get over it and push through it, right? You get over it. And then when the period ends, you change your, your skates, right? You just kind of adjust. Um, you know, you just get get through it. It's not so much about making the change because you're just changing something that is not really you, right? Your skates in a hockey game aren't you. It's the thing that enables you to be you um, or enables you to play the game that you're playing. Um, you know, but the thing is like a, a trans person is objectively them. Like there isn't a mistaken body there, you know, the, the it's, it's kind of funny. Cause like, if you start bringing religion into this, like you'll get pushed aside like crazy, but I mean, transgender individuals are talking about the most spiritual thing in the world. Like they're, they're talking about like this connection that's unshakable, right? What's in my mind is correct. My body is the wrong, this metaphysical thing in my brain that has yet to be determined, like be fully understood at all by science. Like it's one of the biggest conundrums in science. In fact, that is the conscience. Um, you know, that is key that that is King here. That can't be wrong. Nothing about that could be unshakable. The fact that I think that I'm a woman in spite of being born a male, um, that's the proper thing. I, if I think that I'm the female, that's what I am. It can't be, I'm thinking poorly or there's something wrong with my brain and the body's just fine. Right. The fact that we can't even consider that or that a transgender individual can't even consider that, or if you suggest that makes you the hateful person that's trying to erase them from society and from life, you know, the fact that that's the narrative tells you that the narrative is bullshit. So when you hear that narrative come up, you know, beat it down with fire. So G says that, you know, transitioning made it so they were now living in the right body, um, you know, and living with that pain is like a, a, a toxic existence right and it manifested itself in self-harm when they were younger um in, in like during the puberty years and like aggression um and then talks about you know being compounded by abuse experience as a child you know that might be true but it also might not be true right and i hear it so much as part of this like litany of like things that suck about a transgender individual's life that i'm really starting to question like is this really true you know, what is the bar for the abuse? I understand like a lot of shit happens to kids and a lot of parents are terrible people or family members too, not just parents are responsible for child abuse. Um, but a couple things here, you know, is the fact that you weren't accepted like the abuse? Cause I would say that someone is within their right to be like, Hey, this is a little fucked up or like, Hey, I have a son, not a daughter. Um, I get that there's ways to approach that in more like appropriate ways than others. Um, I don't like to hear about parents who disown their kids as a result of this kind of stuff. I feel it's like one of the times where you need to give the most love you can to your, your child, um, you know, to get them through pain and suffering. I couldn't imagine ever abandoning my girls regardless of the circumstance. But, you know, what really is this child abuse bar? Because you don't name names, right? You don't say what it was. You don't, and you just kind of would, if I was 
let's say I was interviewing G and I called G out for this, like she'd probably say I was being insensitive for even asking and that that's not the place, which whatever fair, I guess, you know, it's your experience, you know, you went through it apparently, but I mean, if you're going to bring it up, like, why can't we talk about it? Right. If it's, why can't I bring it up if it's going to be relevant? Like, you know, it's relevant if you're bringing it up. So she talks about how like a lot of her transgender peers report the exact same stuff. Right. And that's kind of the point, right? I made it earlier about the social contagion here. That's, that's contributing to like this increase in people coming out as trans or just questioning or whatever. Um, you know, why can't, why can't there be a social piece of this that's examined um, in a way that like kind of goes against the narrative of like, everybody just has to be what they want to be and what you think is what you are and what in the ends justify the means, you know, um, if you can't examine things from the opposite side and the opposite direction, like the argument is frail, it's weak. Um, you know, I won't belabor too much. I'm already at an hour, but she goes on a little bit more about like life, her life improving after coming out, you know, a fair, whatever. I'm not saying that everybody's going to be miserable. What I will say is that a shit ton of people are miserable. Though. Um, not just in the Matt Walsh documentary, which you got glimpsed into a couple people, but I, I pay a lot of close attention to the D trans subreddit. I find those stories incredibly compelling. I find the individual sharing them incredibly brave. Um, you know, they were so sure of something that was basically eating their soul, their souls from the inside out that they were willing to chop off their breasts, to mutilate their own penises, to change their vaginas into something that resembles a penis. They were willing to do that in, in an effort to just feel okay. Like they probably went into all that thinking that it wasn't going to be great after the fact. So the fact that G is like apparently doing well, you know, good for G, right? Good job. But you know, it's only been a few years. Um, a lot of things change. The science is wholly unproven. Like the fact that people think that this is just, you know, like give your kids some hormones or put your kid on puberty block blockers, not a big deal. Or like you could put back on some fake breasts, like after the fact, the fact that people think that this is reversible is what I would say. I'm not talking about in kids, right? When kids are targeted with this stuff, that is an example of the most depraved, most abusive, like perspective that can possibly be had here silly stupid things like drag queens like having dollars putting their underwear with by grammar school kids like yeah that's sick and all um that's fucked up but it's a little bit different than telling like your three-year-old who could barely speak that because they like something blue and they happen to be a girl that you know they might be trans that is among the worst things you could do i have no patience for it. I don't know about you, but the moment, and it's not really the place for this to come, like this particular part of things to come up in my work. Like everyone in my work is a, an adult, right? An adult human female, like all the women and all the men are adult human males. Um, you know, if we had to define ourselves, right? What is a woman? What is a male? That's what we are at work. There are no kids at work. Um, if there are, we got a problem, right? But, um, you know, once that narrative becomes the norm in society, once that narrative becomes something that we echo in the workplace to the point where you become almost like this enemy of, uh, of your team, of your office, of your department, of the production that you are, you know, have been entrusted to successfully accomplish. 
once you become the enemy of that because you happen to not share in the delight of abusing children um it's time to fucking run i don't know what the fuck we're gonna do you know it's scary it's it's you know the idea in my case the idea of not working in the ic right it's all i've ever done it's all i've really wanted to do um i loved being in uniform i love being out of it i love the people i've met the people that are completely the polar opposites of me and on politics and life i love them too right um you know i love being around people who aren't like me and being in the ic really lets you do that but i do see this stuff creeping through and it comes through now in like little blurbs it comes through on our internal message boards it's subtle in that some people are putting it on their email signatures next to their name um, some people have links to pdfs that discuss like the different pronouns um, or explain them it's subtle you know we have yet to be called into a room and said okay today's the day you guys have training and then you're going to be tested and then you got to do all this stuff. We have yet to approach that day. But the day that happens, you'll have known, you will know that the government has traded reality for appeasing a fiction. For appeasing a fiction that really doesn't serve a better purpose. It serves a purpose, right? It, it satisfies the delusions of a very small group of people and their friends. And I would, I would argue that those people, allies, right, are doing it for themselves as well. Not because they're part of that community, but because they want to be seen as being supportive of it. And that gives them woke cred, right? As if they can put that in a crypto wallet and buy shit with it. Um, you know, reason, um, intellectual honesty, science, all that is suspended for things like this. And I question really why. Um that's what I'm worried about, right? I'm worried about my kids in schools, of course. I'm worried about how they're going to interact with people as they age. I'm worried about what's going to be like for them when they're 18. I'm worried about them in college. I don't even want to think about them in college. My God, like I just cannot picture my girls being in college. Um, and when I think about it, really, like, you know, they're one-sixth of the way there, right? And it feels like just yesterday they came out screaming. And um, I'm terrified, right? Because with every passing day, something weirder is being introduced to us. And we're told that not only is it normal, which we know it's not normal, we're told that we are abnormal for questioning it. We are told that someone else out there is better equipped to teach our kids to see that and say, oh, that's great. That the act of questioning is inherently bad. That wondering like is this proper for me is this the right thing to be around is this a good influence is this the right way to deal with people is this the right way to understand and better understand our, our country as a whole how we were raised how we came to be how this what we're in today came you know from like what it came from is anything about that valuable is there anything to be cherished about how we got here gender is just one part of that question right it's just one way in which progressives rip apart society and tradition and everything in between. But again, if they could have your kid sitting in a classroom believing that there's no such thing as a guy or a girl, right? 
that there's nothing about it, that it's not an important thing, that worse, it was created just like almost as if it was voted on by a committee. If they could have them believing that, where do you think it'll stop? Where do you think it'll go? The possibilities are endless, but the ends are the same. And that is the entire absence, if not the criminalization of your attempts to parent. That is the path we're on. I don't have insight into schools personally, right? My kids are young. They're not there yet. I haven't taught here in LCPS. I haven't been in public school since I was a kid. So 20 years since junior high school, at least. Um, well, 20 years since high school, 20 plus years since junior high school. And then high school, I went to private school. Um, so I, I just haven't been there, right? But you guys have, right? I'm thinking going forward. But I'm thinking about this and saying, I'm experiencing this and seeing it trickle into something that has nothing to do with kids. It has, some, it has everything to do with our national security. It has everything to do with how we defend our country. So me, my job is defending things on a broader level um, from many different threats, of which there are hundreds and thousands of them across the world at any given second, right? The other threat is the threat posed on that which we cherish the most right here in our homes because what the kids learn in school follows them. It stays with them. Again, they are impressionable. The fact that we can just allow people to throw these types of concepts around that are just so salacious, that they're so false, that are so outlandish, that are so detrimental, that are downright perverted, um, if not like borderline criminal, like criminally abusive. The fact that we're allowing that is, you know, that's the death now. That's the signal that we're coming to the end. The reaction needs to be swifter. The reaction needs to be fiercer. It's about a lot more than just electing people, right? Or trying to. It's about a lot more than tweeting, which I have a lot of fun doing lately. It's not violence, obviously. That's never the answer. But, but bear in mind that we are currently at a fight for the future of our children's souls. Think about it just a little more earnestly. It's not so much about how they're going to feel in a bathroom. It's about how they'll feel for the rest of their lives. You're not going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here forever. Most of us will not outlive our kids. We got to do what we can while we're here to ensure that they are as ready to approach those years, that life when they have kids and their kids have kids, that we don't let this destroy everything about which was innately good about us this whole time. We are in a country of, of evil people. We are in a country of oppressors. That's not who we are. Stop letting people tell you that you are. From the most in your face to subtle things like the words of G, tell people, no, I'm done listening to you. If you're going to come at me with stupid stuff like emerging facets of Western patriarchy and affirming practices and affirming uh, environments, if you're going to quote pseudoscience from stupid fucking socially woke social justice factories like Trevor Project, say, fuck you, that's bullshit, show me something better. If you're going to talk about things that don't exist, like don't say gay bills, when the bill doesn't even say don't say gay in any part of its hundred pages, whatever it is. Actually, no, that was a shorter bill, right? Ten pages. Either way, if they're going to start clowning you, 
Don't clown them back. Don't start a fight. Just say, you know what? Fuck you. I'm tired of the conversations like this. And this is why I think that you need to be shunned. And then defend yourself, defend your kids. And I promise you, promise you'll have done your part in defending society moving forward long after you and I are both in the ground, right? God bless you. Stay safe. Pray for our kids.